This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Hara Hotel, A Tale of Syrian Refugees in Greece, by Teresa Thornhill. This is a first-hand account of a Greek refugee camp and the stories of the refugees staying there. Syrian Kurd Juwan Azad left his home and family in Damascus in 2011 to flee military service under the al-Assad regime. After several troubled years as a refugee in Turkey, he arrived in Greece by sea, on the route taken by hundreds of thousands of his fellow Syrians seeking a safe haven in Europe. But as borders closed across the Balkans in early 2016, Juwan and his fellow Syrians found themselves blocked from traveling any further. Teresa Thornhill volunteered at Hara Hotel, a makeshift camp on the Greece-Macedonia border. An Arabic speaker, she met Syrians from all walks of life as she distributed clothing and organized activities for children. One of the Syrians was Juwan, who would later walk through the mountains of Macedonia to safety in Austria. In Hara Hotel, Thornhill interweaves a narrative of daily life at the camp with Juwan's extraordinary story, the recent history of the revolution in Syria, and an account of the ensuing civil war, painting a vivid picture of the predicament of Syrians trapped on Europe's borders. Hara Hotel, A Tale of Syrian Refugees in Greece, by Teresa Thornhill. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. What are rights really worth when governments deny people the very right to have rights? Political theorist Hannah Arendt recognized this loss of the right to have rights as millions of refugees found themselves without a national home in the wake of the world wars. Human rights, it became clear, proved to be an empty promise for those human beings who were excluded from citizenship, the foundational right to be a member of a political community. Today, Arendt's insight remains a critical one, as a record number of humans transit the globe in search of economic and physical security, and as far-right activists and establishment liberals scapegoat them for the chaos and precarity unleashed by neoliberalism and war, condemning migrants to second-class citizenship or even death in the Mediterranean, and the deserts of the Mexican-American borderlands. My guests today, Stephanie DeGoyer and Astra Taylor, just wrote a book about just this for Verso. It's called The Right to Have Rights, and it also includes chapters by Alistair Hunt, Lita Maxwell, and Samuel Moyne. Before we get this thing started, it's our spring fundraising drive, and our goal is to reach 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig. I put a lot of work into the show, researching and preparing the interviews, scheduling the interviews, which it turns out is remarkably time-consuming, doing the interviews, doing all this admin-type stuff that I never had to do when I was an alt-weekly reporter in Philly. Meanwhile, Alex Lewis, my heroic producer, works hard to make sure that I don't sound like an ass and that the show sounds nice. I'm really grateful that I have a job that is basically me reading books that I want to read and then talking to the authors, and talking to all manners of activists and thinkers working to transform the world. But we need your support at patreon.com slash the dig to ensure that this podcast is financially viable over the long haul. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. It'll only take a moment, and we really appreciate it. Thank you. And here is Stephanie DeGoyer and Astra Taylor. This interview is a long interview. And so, per our new custom, we are splitting it into two parts. This is part one. Stephanie DeGoyer is a professor of English at Willamette University and a 2018-19 fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard University. She is completing a book about naturalization as a legal and literary form. Astra Taylor is a filmmaker and writer. 
Her new documentary about democracy, which features Cornel West, Sylvia Federici, Angela Davis, and Wendy Brown, amongst others, will be released this fall. And her new book, Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, will be published in January by Metropolitan Books. Stephanie DeGoyer and Astra Taylor, welcome to The Dig. Hello. Hey. This book is about the political philosopher Hannah Arendt's notion of the right to have rights. What does that mean and who was Arendt? Hannah Arendt is a German-born political theorist. and She's widely regarded as one of the most important thinkers of the 20th century, though it's really difficult to systematically sum up her work because she wrote on so many topics, totalitarianism, uh, revolution, and freedom, and probably most famously, her book on Adolf Eichmann, um, uh, which is one of the major organizers of the Holocaust. So the right to have rights is a phrase that in our book we take up, um, and it's something she only talked about twice. First, in the context of an article called The Rights of Man, What Are They?, which was written for a small labor review journal in, I think, 1949. And then she later adapts the phrase in her tome, um, The Origins of Totalitarianism, which is published in 1951. And so in the ninth chapter of Origins of Totalitarianism, she takes up the problem of statelessness, uh, which is arising after. After World War I, but especially after World War II, uh, in, in response to what she calls the disintegration of the nation-state system. And so what we have is millions of people who suddenly have lost all their citizenship and become stateless persons. So it's at this moment when all of these stateless people are um, moving across Europe that Arendt argues that they should be most... Um, in the moment to receive what we call human rights or what she would have called the rights of man. Um, But she actually goes on to argue that being human is not a sacred position. In fact, it's a very vulnerable position and it's one that can only be relieved functionally by citizenship. So she argues that the one right that is necessary for anything is the right to citizenship, which she calls uh, effectively the right to have rights. And this right is is more important, effectively, than human rights. And her attention to this this concept came from her, even though it was very brief attention to this concept, mm-hmm. came from her own experience. She managed to flee Nazi-occupied France by, you all write in your introduction, a combination of sheer luck, quick thinking, and assistance from several individuals. And mm-hmm. it made her one of a very few Jews who were granted refugee status in the U.S. at the time. How did her own personal experience shape her thinking? You know, it's interesting because I was reading an interview with her yesterday and she says, you know, I didn't even become political until I was 26 years old and 1933 with the the burning of the Reichstag building. And she really became political um, when she had to escape illegally from Nazi Germany. And she ended up in France working for a Zionist organization for a bit before she was interned in a camp. And you're right um, in summing up that she was only able to get to America on a forged visa with the help of some friends. She was a a stateless refugee for 17 years. And so that personal experience combined with her kind of shrewd analysis of what was happening in Europe, that's what brought her to the conclusion that there must be something like a right separate from human rights on which all rights are possible. Um, so it is it is that combination of her 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 deeply felt personal experience and um, her ability to analyze it more broadly. We're going to get into this a, a bunch more later, but just to set the table and the answer to this coming question is a little obvious. But why did you write this book now? Why is this notion relevant, so relevant in 2018? Well, you know, it's interesting. The book, it, it took a, a few turns. It 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 came out a little bit later than we planned. And we started working on it long before Donald Trump was elected. And uh, people were thinking about rightlessness or immigration in the U.S. context, at least. 
it, it started from a need to sort of take stock of how the right to have rights, which is on the one hand, a phrase that Arendt speaks of so lightly and so um, infrequently, but yet it's been picked up by so many people from philosophers to political theorists to activists. And so on one hand, we wanted to take stock of that legacy and see how people have been using it. And on the other hand, um, we really wanted to look really closely at how it's being used within the context of her own writing and, and a lot of her um, other books and to sort of pull it apart and see what could be useful about it. And so that's what led to the form of the book, which is somewhat unique in political uh, critical theory, which is we assigned one part of the phrase to four different people and sort of asked each person to, to really tear it open and look at its constituent parts. And the idea was to think what is useful about this and what isn't and sort of begin a conversation from there. Astro, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I think the book is, it comes out at a really interesting time because there is this renewed interest in her work and obviously the, the refugee crisis being in the media contributed to that. Um, and then, you know, I've read that sales of the origins of totalitarianism, you know, skyrocketed in, in the wake of Trump's election. And I, and I think one, one thing this exercise does in this collection, the right to have rights is it shows, you know, how actually, um, our right challenges a lot of the shibboleths of this moment and the sort of platitudes, right. Um, I don't know, I read somewhere that she almost called the book imperialism, which, you know, if it had been called that, it certainly wouldn't have sold in the same way as it's it's selling now. Um, and and so I think it's it's also an intervention to the way that Arendt's sort of, you know, sort of interpreted because she is such a sort of challenging thinker and someone who's not e easily sort of summarized or reduced. I would add to that origins of totalitarianism, which Zastra points out is um, being picked up by everybody and then resold a week later when people find it um, <laughs> unhelpful. Uh, you know, people think of that as a book about origins of totalitarianism. And, and Arendt really disliked the title in later years. And in other um, editions, it was called The Burden of Our Times, mainly because she didn't think it was a book about origins um, or specifically about totalitarianism. And that title I think does distract from what I take, and this is my personal opinion, to be its most meaningful writing, which is on statelessness and human rights. I mean, that chapter, which, as I mentioned, comes from an earlier article, is where she's doing some really interesting thinking. But if you just focus on the title and totalitarianism, you, you, you might miss it. As you mentioned earlier, uh, I mean, she did focus a lot explicitly on statelessness, but she only really mentioned the right to have rights in passing, which is remarkable given the afterlife that the phrase has had. And in part because of this, it was after the Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren invoked the phrase in 1958, writing in dissent in Perez v. Brownell, which was a ruling that affirmed the government's power to strip a man who had voted in a Mexican election of his citizenship. Um, Warren used the phrase in, in this uh, dissent against this ruling, and I believe in one other case as well. And as a result, it was he who was for decades credited for coining it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. One of, That was one of the more interesting research detours that we took with writing the introduction was to, to do a Google search and to find that, yeah, in fact, she's not credited with her own coinage um, uh, until much later, until um, philosophers and uh, political theorists begin taking up her work. So um, in part, part of the book is to sort of reset that story a little bit, um, but also to deepen uh, our thinking on a phrase that however we use it and whoever says it, we take to be axiomatically um, uh, and understandable as if, as if it, it's just a sort of common sense statement that of course you have a right to have rights. I mean, I think she also sort of said it in passing and, you know, uh, the introduction says it wasn't a watershed of her thought in part because she didn't put a huge amount of stock in rights as these foundational pre-existing pre-political, you know, 
even quasi-religious things, right? She she was a a person who emphasized political action and and people doing things together. So I think you know part of it is that yeah, it wasn't it wasn't something that she had a tremendous amount of faith in, as as much as she saw that it was important, right? One last table setting question I want to ask before we get deeper into the the phrase and the possibilities that it offers is, and I asked a similar question to to Caitlin Zaloum, an anthropologist who was on recently when I asked her to say, explain what is anthropology, what is ethnography. I want to ask you what is political theory, what is political philosophy, and how can it be, be something that's useful in helping people make sense of the world they live in so that they, they can change it? One thing I I would say firstly before I talk about my what I think or ask her what you think is um Arendt resisted the category or title of being a political philosopher. Huh. She 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 says in an interview um that political philosophy is too burdened by tradition, right? And so she and that there's a tension, a profound tension between politics which she doesn't see as neutral and philosophy which poses as objective. And so she wants to look at politics, she says, not philosophy. Um, and she also wants to think and think critically against the grain. So in in my view, um, political philosophy, however we categorize it, I, I mean, I think it's valuable because, um, you know, in a world where we're constantly taking in the latest hot take on a topic before moving on to the next headline, at the very least, it provides a kind of resource for thinking slowly um, and thinking with others. Um, but it's important for her. I mean, she, she, she didn't feel beholden to tradition in, in the ways that you might feel as a professor of political philosophy. The dig is very amenable yeah. to cold takes. <laughs> I mean, I, I really, I, I love her insistence that she's not a philosopher. I think it's really an an interesting move, and and some, you know, I, it was also rooted in her experience, right, of watching philosophers and intellectuals be seduced by Nazism and you know, to not make very good political judgments, right? She didn't, uh, and and so you can take from that what you will, but I, um. You know, and I also like that she makes this counterintuitive move of sort of defending doxa, defending opinion. That's what politics is, right? It's it's not just the search for timeless truth, but actually something that is very contingent and happens in the moment. Um, but, you know, I think for me, there's something intrinsic to democracy and, and political philosophy that feels related to her. Um, and I think, I think it's that democracy is a as a sort of form of government or a way of running society demands that the people think. And that's why historically, you know, you, you go to back to ancient Greece, not to sort of reify that tradition, but the reason that democracy emerged alongside political theory was that it got people asking collectively the Socratic question, which is how should we live, right? People were, were asking that together. If you live in a, you know, a system of government where the people don't rule, you don't have to ask that question, how do we live, right? Because the the king is making that decision, that determination. So democracy and philosophy are, have this sort of intimate connection. And beyond that, you know, this question of the demos of, of the people, right, isn't in, in, an inherently abstract, <laughs> it's an inherently abstract thing. Like what what is the people? If you live in a monarchy, you can point to a king and say that they rule, but what is this thing called the people that rules? And that's, I think, you know, a thread in this conversation we're having about rights, right? Who is who is part of the demos? Who is excluded? Um, the people is an abstract concept, not something we can just point to. And so you need political philosophy to figure this out. It's such an abstract concept that some can rhetorically pit it against democracy, but we'll get into that more later in the interview. One of the... M- more striking and somewhat cryptic things that Arendt has to say about the right to have rights is that it's a right that only became visible when it was lost in in the case that she was writing it about as as millions of refugees in the wake of war found themselves without any sort of foundational right citizenship a claim within the demos of a nation state upon which to make a claim to any other sort of right. 
Can you talk a little bit about the, this quality of this this right that is only recognized when it's taken away, what that, what that means, what that reveals? In my chapter for the book, I spend a lot of time focusing on the fact that a rent phrases the right to have rights as a lost right. And I, I don't think really anyone had focused on that um, so specifically. I certainly hadn't in the past. And she says directly, we become aware or we became, past tense, aware of the existence of a right to have rights only when there suddenly emerged millions of people who had lost and could not regain these rights because of the new global situation. So for me, the question became, what does it mean that we are only aware of this right to have rights, which is maybe phrased as a to be a member of a political community? What does it mean that we only become aware of it when we've already lost it? Um, so it's kind of a puzzle. And I spent a lot of time trying to find a rhetorical term for it. Um, but, and this is my opinion, I, I think that by phrasing it as a lost right, or rent was asking us, and this isn't something we've necessarily wanted to do when we take up the right to have rights, but I think she wants us to focus it on it less as a right um, that we can recover than she wants to direct us to see how it is we lost it. And for her, she was looking so sharply at the disintegration of the nation state system in Europe. And she was saying, we have all these states post-war that are organizing um, themselves along principles of national autonomy with rights to self-determination, but they're mixed populations that contain several ethnic groups. And so what starts to happen is that to deal with these mixed populations, these nation states are making some groups minorities, so like the Slovaks, and then the other groups, um, as, as Arendt herself was a member of the Jews, were just being denationalized. So, you know, more than focusing on how we might get the right to have rights or recover it or repair it, I think she really wants us to see how this collection of states, each prior to, like, prioritizing their own sovereignty, um, they made statelessness possible. That, that, it, that is that humans made statelessness possible um, by acting in their own self-interests. So I think that for her is, is what she wants us to see um, of her time. Um, and not necessarily, I don't think she offers solutions as to how we can enforce a right to citizenship. Uh, I think she wants us to look at what our, how we created it. Um, I mean, that, that's sort of my opinion. I don't know what Astra would say or others in the book. Um, but yeah, I mean, I took that, I, I took it and sort of, you know, applied it to the present, which is, you know, was sort of my task in the book, right? And, and part of why I was drawn to contribute and accepted the invitation is because I'd been thinking about rights um, a lot in in some reporting and in a documentary film I'm making um, where I uh, follow some refugees and have been reporting on their saga over the last few years as they left Af Afghanistan and Syria, but also because as an activist, you know, working in the modern age, right, you revert, you just sort of do this rights talk almost like just by default or by instinct. It's like, oh, my rights are being violated. We have a right to X, Y, and Z. And I, I suddenly was like, what What are we talking about? What What do we mean by this word? What do we intend it to do? Um, why is this Why is this the way that we think about social change? Um, and so, you know, I was quite struck by that passage as well, that this, the right to have rights is something you only sort of recognize when it's lost. And I was thinking about the moment, the moment we're in where people, you know, around the world are feeling a sudden sense of sort of disenfranchisement and dispossession. And in a way, it's the sense that, you know, governance has moved to a sort of transnational level and the rights of citizenship just aren't as worth, worth as much as they used to be. Um, so I think there's something provocative in it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't take her statement as a kind of like maxim, but it did make me think, okay, what's happening today? Um, and how, how are her insights sort of fruitful or applicable? Hi, this is Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig. As you know, The Dig is an essential podcast doing critical work and shaping the meaning of what the left can be today. It's my favorite podcast, and you should support it by donating at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. 
and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Work, The Last 1,000 Years by Andrea Kamlazi, translated by Lauren Ballhorn and Jacob K. Watson. Say the word work, and most people think of some form of gainful employment. Yet this limited definition has never corresponded to the historical experience of most people, whether in colonies, developing countries, or the industrialized world. That gap between common assumptions and reality grows even more pronounced in the case of women and other groups excluded from the labor market. In this important intervention, Andrea Komlazi demonstrates that popular understandings of work have varied radically in different ages and countries. Looking at labor history around the globe, from the 13th to the 21st centuries, Kamlazi sheds light on both discursive concepts and the concrete coexistence of multiple forms of labor, paid and unpaid, free and unfree. From the economic structures and ideological mystifications surrounding work in the Middle Ages, all the way to European colonialism and the Industrial Revolution, Kamlazi's narrative adopts a distinctly global and feminist approach revealing the hidden forms of unpaid and hyper-exploited labor, which often go ignored, yet are key to the functioning of the capitalist world system. Work, The Last 1,000 Years, will open readers' eyes to an issue much thornier and more complex than most people imagine, one which will be around as long as basic human needs and desires exist. Work, The Last 1,000 Years, by Andrea Komlazi. Out now from Verso Books. It seems like less a maxim and more in maxim and more of an indictment. Uh, Stephanie, you quote this really powerful passage from Origins of Totalitarianism. Uh, Arendt writes, "The danger is that a global, universally interrelated civilization may produce barbarians from its own midst by forcing millions of people into conditions which, despite all appearances," are the conditions of savages. It's extraordinarily powerful because it, it, it turns this dichotomy between civilization and savagery on, on its head, amongst other things. You know, what's so interesting about that quotation is that in many ways, and I was thinking about this for a while, is that it's a kind of reversal of the classic state of nature story that we tell in political philosophy, right? That uh, at first, we have a state of nature where human beings, depending on who you're reading, compact or covenant together uh, to create a civil society. And here she's kind of reversing it. And, and she, sorry, that that prior to that, there are different states of nature, obviously. But the Hobbesian yeah. one is that they're running around rampantly, <laughs> wantonly murdering each other. <laughs> exactly. Or the Rousseauian one where they're very, very happy and self-contained and um, natural. But. But she's reversing this and saying it's actually it's this globally universalized civilization that's producing this new state of nature, which is forcing millions of people into a condition of abstractness or statelessness. And so I think in some ways it's kind of saying like that organized human society is to blame for this. Right. It engineered this problem. It's not. Um, in other words, the political organizations aren't fixing it. They're causing it. And I think I, I think that's really interesting to, um, again, shift blame as opposed to um, e- examining rightlessness from the perspective of that, well, we just need to get people rights in certain countries, but it becomes a problem of looking at how these countries actively don't want people to have rights too. So um, I, I, I think that's I think that's the indictment at the end of chapter nine, for sure. And and the irony that the very barbarities of civilization committed by, by civilizational states are often justified by the danger posed by purported savages of some sort. Absolutely. Um, I think, and I th- you said this so nicely, it's like an inversion of, of the typical uh, hierarchy that we have, right? That um, civilization is, is, tending to or fixing the barbaric instead of producing it um, 
I mean, I think that's what's interesting about this book and why when people pick up the origins of totalitarianism, it gives them something more complex than what they might have bargained for, right? Is that she's not, she doesn't just sort of blame the unruly masses for following a demagogue. Like her story isn't that simple. It's this whole process of, of imperialism and the, the bourgeoisie pursuing their own power and profit and employing, you know, race thinking and then racism and anti-Semitism. And it, and it's this, this complex story where, you know, forces are sort of mobilized from above um, and affect the people below. And so I think, I, I think that's just what I found so interesting in actually spending time with this text is how um, it really, it, it's an indictment of, of, structures and not not um not a, a rant against the people right which is it's such a popular take right now that this sort of, cf uh, the, we'll get to that <laughs> yes yeah but i think that that but that's what this you know when she's talking about when she's calling attention to the role of civilization um it's it's there's a a, a structural problem that she's illuminating oh i just want to add that 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 idea of force is so interesting to me too. This idea of forcing millions of people into conditions—I mean, it's—it's it's important to note that by not receiving a stateless person, that's that's forcing them into a condition of um, the savage. In the case of that quote, I mean that the, the force isn't just the person expelling um, a person from a state; it's actually not receiving them as well. And I think that's specifically where we can put some attention, which is that by not acting, by not receiving, by not, um, by turning away, you're forcing somebody into the condition of statelessness. And that, that's powerful because I think some, we could talk about this in a little bit. I, I think the U S in terms of its uh, asylum policies, it tends to think, well, if, if it's not our problem, if we can't take you in, uh, we have quota, we have a cap, but I think Arendt would 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 disagree with that. In fact, that by not taking in um, the millions of people in these positions, we are forcing them outside of uh, civilization. So, in that sense, it, it's it's a broad indictment against a lot of people, and specifically people who would rather see themselves as sort of innocent in the problem. I think that's uh, very smart and precisely right, it, that people tend to think of the question of whether to allow asylum seekers and refugees in as either sort of doing not letting them in, which is framed as doing nothing or sort of a morally neutral action at best, or doing them a favor, which is a beneficent action, when in fact, the the non-action is itself an action of of exclusion, whether we're talking about a thoroughly anti-Semitic U.S. government during World War II, during the Holocaust, denying Jews safe haven in the U.S. and even turning back a ship full of Jews back to their to be murdered in Europe, or today with with refugees from Syria, Africa, Afghanistan, elsewhere. I think you can also see it as a very cheap way of trying to inflate the value of, you know, U.S. citizenship, right? It, it appears to make citizenship more valuable. It doesn't cost anything to exclude people. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, this, this gets back to the question of, of rights, right? Which is, we are, we're talking at a very different time than when Hannah wrote her book, but there are international structures that are supposed to institutionalize human rights. And yet it's still, you know, these, uh, asylum seekers are are treated, you know, bureaucratically as though they're seeking a privilege and and not trying to enact a right that they they possess. Arendt wrote another quote that that stuck out to me that for the first time confronted with people who had indeed lost all other qualities and specific relationships except that they were still human, the world found nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. It's interesting. I've been thinking about how we even we we speak of the refugee crisis in Europe. But what's interesting is, you know, refugee, the, the word is actually a sort of legal determination, right? It's a legal status that some people are granted and some people are denied, right? Some people are not refugees. They're economic migrants uh, just seeking, you know, a better life or an escape from poverty, right? So so um, when I was in Greece, 
I was talking to some activists there and they refused to even say the word refugee. They would refer yeah. to people who'd come across as our friends from across the sea, right? Because they didn't want to reinforce this, this word that, you know, could be denied to some people who, you know, they thought had the right to seek a better life. And it's part of a um, good, a, a good migrant, bad migrant dichotomy on some level. Yeah, good bag. This this is the division through which the sort of current international structures seek to deny people their human rights, right? To say, well, you're not actually a refugee with a legitimate asylum claim. You're an economic migrant. And I think this actually, you know, gets to a problem with Hannah Arendt's, you know, commitment to distinguishing political or civil rights from economic rights, right? Because you see that, you know, she was, she, she, um, you know, was quite skeptical of economic and social rights. And, and you see that in a very different way being employed by the sort of bureaucracies today, right? If you're just seeking economic rights, then you are not, uh, you're not legitimate. You can be deported back to your, uh, you know, your supposed home country, though sometimes people are being deported back to places that they've never even uh, been or lived. I have a, uh, a friend, for example, who I, um, first reported on two years ago, who was born in Afghanistan. He's Hazar, which is an ethnic minority, and he grew up in Pakistan. He, you know, has not been to Afghanistan since he was an infant, and he made it to Germany only to, um, uh, you know, have his asylum claim be denied. So now he's going to be deported back to a place that he's never even lived, and, and where, where Hazaras are frequently massacred. Yeah, and where hazards are frequently massacred. And so this is quite, you know, this is this is what is, you know, we can talk about human rights in the abstract, but uh, up close and, and it, when you're moving through this bureaucracy, you know, the phrase does become, or the concept of, of rights, you know, does become almost meaningless. So, you know, this one guy is a really good example of what, what these systems are like up close. So, He's Hazara. He's this ethnic minority, and it wasn't mentioned on his first. the the um, The denials didn't even mention that initially. So then he went back and he appealed. He made clear that that was part of the the paperwork. Then uh, then he was told, "Well, you have to, you know, learn the language. You have to learn German." So then he he's quite good with foreign languages. He learns German. Then most recently, the judge said. Oh, the fact that you've learned German so swiftly shows me that you're actually a very smart young man who will be able to make your way in Afghanistan, even though you've never lived there. Good and God. so it's just there's been this almost, you know, darkly comedic process of trying to enact, you know, the right that he supposedly has to seek asylum. That's that's what we have. We have the right to seek asylum, not be granted it. Um, now yeah, we can read. Nothing, now we can nothing, read Kafka in the original. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, Kafka, he's living it. So yeah, there's nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. Yeah, I, I want to ask you more about that. That seems like where a lot of the the political possibilities of this notion of the right to have rights come from is that it provides for this opportunity to politicize the question of, of rights because uh, it recognizes that it's up to a state to recognize rights and it's states that continually fail to do so. I mean, in fact, they rampantly violate these rights and deny that they even exist. So when people aren't considered citizens or members of, of a political community, it is a reminder that it's always been citizenship and membership in that political community, not mere humanity that counts in the end. It, can you to talk a little bit about about this kind of insufficiency of, of human rights? I can say just summarizing and extrapolating from a rent. Um, I teach, I'm a university professor. And whenever I teach a class on human rights, first day, students have this profound faith in human rights as if they exist. And they don't think of them as based in religion or um, on something abstract like natural law. They, they just sort of without thinking, think that they exist in the world, um, whether backed up by some kind of international law. And it's that slow process of revelation with them, I think, that someone like Arendt does as well, is to, to sort of help people realize that um, human rights are arbitrarily um, decided sometimes. Astra brought up the cases of refugee claims. We know in the U.S. that asylum 
cases are so arbitrarily granted. It depends on the judge you have. Do you have a good translator? Is uh, did someone do the research? I mean, they're not uh, sacrosanct, and I think we sometimes just forget that, or we never knew it in the first place. Um, but that that quote that you mentioned earlier, Dan, about um, there's nothing sacred in the abstract nakedness of being human. Um, in fact, uh, just to bring up a rent on this, she would say that, in fact, that's the most vulnerable place to be, is to be abstractly naked. Um, the best place to be is to have some at least the clothing of citizenship. It's precisely when they're reduced to, to mere humanity that 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 humans are so exposed to what we would typically think of as dehumanizing treatment and brutality. I mean, I think there's, there's, uh, to me, there's also, I mean, there's fundamentally just a power problem, right? I mean, you you can have rights, but the question is, can you actually exercise them? Are there institutions that can defend you? Um, You know, the decks are so stacked against, against people. Uh, And then I think there's, there's also, I mean, just thinking about human rights, but also rights in general. I mean, there's, there's a problem. Yes. Why are they insufficient? And one is that they're often framed in a defensive way, right? They're a defense from the government. I mean, we know in the United States, the bill of rights is that exactly right. They're kind of negative. So-called negative rights. Yeah. They're negative rights. The government shall not um, trespass. And well, the, um, you know, Declaration of Human Rights includes sort of more positive rights, like you know the right to education and and housing and things you know we don't have in the the United States as 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 Americans. Um, uh, you know those aren't really sort of front and center. Typically, they are defenses against uh, government abuse. Um, you know that's what we think of when we think about Amnesty International, right? So against torture and detention and things like that. I mean, I think the other thing is as political people, as people who want to create change, rights do put us in also a, a legalistic framework, right? Because it's about the law and it, it it depends on lawyers. It's not a sort of necessarily a kind of movement first, power first framework. Um, uh, and I think, you know, that's, that's a challenge. Human, uh, you know, human rights are also sort of individualistic. This brings us to the sort of Marx, Marxist critique, right? They treat people as sort of, uh, separate, um, you know, and, you know, it's interesting to try to imagine what a more, uh, a, a sort of human rights framework that, that emphasized the collective or social rights, um, more would be. So I think, you know, I think there are sort of problems with, again, defaulting to that framework, which is why I was beginning to challenge it and thinking, okay, we need to really use rights with a lot of, we need to use, uh, rights and engage in rights talk you know, strategically and think about why we're doing it, not just do it by default. Um, at the same time, sometimes like criticisms of rights can get a bit too glib um, because, you know, we have them. And I, you know, and that was one thing that really struck me reporting on the on the refugee crisis was that people would say, you know, we came here because we thought you believed in human rights and those matter and, and we want you to believe in them. So, you know, I think they're important, but let's try to to expand them and to recognize that ultimately, you know, rights aren't trump cards or whatever we, you know, political theorists say they are. Like it's it's a power. It's about power. I want to agree with Astra that you know rights. Um, it is you know it's you can quickly become quite cynical about human rights if you do all this reading. But I mean, they're powerful shaming mechanisms, um, and I wouldn't want to underestimate the rhetorical dimension of, of human rights uh activism never um uh i do we're not, we're not here to deconstruct so. the concept and toss them in the trash we're here to complicate it <laughs> right right and I, I so i think the shaming element is is important i i am intrigued by some of the stuff that sam moyne's been saying about maybe moving towards thinking about duties um you know what duties do states have towards and i think that's an interesting question for um thinking it doesn't solve the problem, but for thinking about, uh, uh, you know, what do we owe other people outside of the state or to, to what extent are we obliged to them? Uh, maybe more ethical, but it, 
it's 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 an interesting way of thinking. And we spend so much time talking about rights that maybe we need to you know bring up this question of duty. One of your co-authors, Lita Maxwell, has a really nice line along those lines. She writes that viewing the self as naturally possessing rights leads us to try to assure our rights primarily by protecting the self from others or attempting to render it invulnerable rather than opening ourselves to the risks and contingencies of the political action and institution building that will actually create and sustain the status of rights-bearing individuals. I think that's that's a, a powerful argument, and it seems like what she's trying to say here is what, what Astro was mentioning earlier, that rights in reality, if they're substantive, are truly a matter of power and not just of invoking some transcendent, abstract moral code. The other thing is, you know, they're not just something that we, you know, we have, right? Like rights don't have to be limited to the rights that we have in the Bill of Rights or the, or whatever international declaration, um, you know, we could invent and and claim new rights. I, I wrote a story, I don't know, maybe a year ago or more about this wave of, of towns and um, communities that have been doing interesting things like uh, coming together and writing new ordinances that would one, uh, deny corporations legal rights, and then two, give the citizens uh, new rights. For example, um, some communities gave themselves the right to engage in civil disobedience to stop fracking, right? So they, they got together, they took the, the, machine of local government and gave themselves some new rights so that they would be able to uh, better ward off threats to the their collective health. So I like examples um, like that. And it's interesting because actually when I was talking to Lee and Stephanie later, I had r- randomly picked up this book and I, I learned that actually um, in the Pennsylvania State Constitution of 1776, c- citizens had given themselves the right to abolish the government if they needed to. And that right was a uh, not and not incorporated <laughs> at the federal level, obviously. And I think was subject to a concerted and successful elite counter revolution not that yes. long thereafter, yes. if I remembered my Pennsylvania history correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but there's a right that we lost. It's kind of interesting. I mean, so, um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is these are the you know risks and contingencies of political action, right, that she's talking about. It's kind of giving ourselves the, the freedom to um, imagine new rights and to figure out how to fight for them. Um, I don't know, this is a little bit of a, uh, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's quite interesting that in the book, we don't mention corporate rights. And, you know, obviously we are talking about humans, but corporations are persons. Um, and And there is even a chapter on the question of you know, rights for whom, right? Like who, who is the subject of rights and, um, and, you know, could, could we imagine a world where non-human animals have rights? And I guess, I guess what I've been thinking about, because there's this temptation as a leftist to kind of critique human rights, um, and, and to. As a bourgeois liberal (laughs) concept. Yes, exactly. As the sort of sentimental bourgeois individualist kind of concept. And, And so I've been thinking about how, how much, um, how much emphasis capital has put on put on securing and expanding the rights of corporations, right? And it's quite an interesting. Uh, there's there's some interesting stuff in the history, and that you know Hannah Arendt is is looking at the distinction between you know the rights the rights of man and the rights of citizen, right? Which is the a distinction that goes back to the French Revolution. You know, she's saying, okay, you know, are you know is is human rights, do human rights even exist when you need to be a member of a political community? So, so, so man versus citizen and corporations, it, it had, they took advantage of a sort of similar distinction because a corporate personhood came out of a Supreme court case, right. That basically made the argument that corporations are persons according to the 14th amendment, which we know was, was designed to, um, protect the rights of, of freed slaves. And so if the 14th Amendment had, had used the word citizen and not person, uh, they wouldn't have been able to to kind of like get away with that sleight of hand, 
right? Um, and Adam um, Winkler has a new book on this, We the Corporations. I haven't read it, but I've heard a few interviews on it. And apparently over this, I don't know, like period of a few decades, the 14th Amendment, which is very clearly drafted to protect the rights of, of freed slaves, is invoked far more times in legal cases to protect corporations than black Americans. Well, I'm not surprised. And that gets to the the point that it's about power, right? I mean, so you can have these rights on paper, but corporations were much better situated to, you know, I'm assuming to engage in the cost of litigation, which is not cheap, to, you know, push for their rights and expansion of their rights. And they've steadily accumulated uh, uh, more rights. Like the but I mean, wasn't the Hobby Lobby case about freedom of religion, right? <laughs> For corporations. So I think that the the fact that, you know, capital has recognized that rights are very significant should give us pause in in and and you know, is something um but also sort of shows these imbalances that, you know, rights alone are not are not it. Um you need to have you need to have the the resources to mobilize and expand them, and especially in in the the in the courts, which is not a cheap not not a cheap place to be successful. That was part one of my interview with English professor Stephanie DeGoyer and writer and filmmaker Astra Taylor. Part two will post on Thursday or Friday. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after puzzling over Arendt's odd take on social and economic rights, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. All of the music is by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please do leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch to new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends, family members, and total strangers about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but by no means least, do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help. <laughs>